ultimately, I think a lot of producers want good people on their show. And so, you know, what a better way to show that you're a good person by having all this stuff that you've done um, without an expectation of return just because it was the right thing to do. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I am here today with Sharon Amir, who is a film and television editor who's also actively involved in the Motion Picture Editors Guild, and might I also say somebody that has been a fairly long part of my history and my journey going from the world into features, television, otherwise, the union, activism, all these other things. We've had a lot of behind-the-scenes conversations, and today we're going to put those conversations on the record. So Sharon been a long road, but here we are on the microphone sharing our stories today. So glad to finally have you here. Glad to be here, Zach. Thank you. Well, as far as our story is concerned, our story begins on a little show that was called The OA for Netflix. And we're certainly not going to get mired in the details, but that's where you and I first met, where you at the time were an assistant editor. I was brought in as an editor. Very short-lived relationship, because just to address the elephant in the room right away, whenever it is that I talk about that one show where I got fired from, this is the show that I got fired from. And it happens to everybody when you get to a certain level. And I had multiple colleagues that are like, oh, you got fired? Oh, you finally made it. You're not anybody until you've gotten fired. I was going to um, say that, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, it's a big shock of the time, and this episode's not going to be about that at all. But that's where our origin story begins, as we at least had the pleasure for a few weeks of calling each other colleagues. However, your origin story certainly doesn't begin at the OA. So I first want to begin by learning more about you, your origin story that brought us to that point, And then from there, how so many things changed and grew in your career 
And then we're gonna talk about how you were able to make all that happen. Because truly the reason we're here is not just to catch up and talk on the record about things that you and I have talked about behind the scenes for so long. It's because I've had this theory that I've been trying to prove to so many people in our industry for so many years that the nice guys and girls do finish first and that providing value above all else is not to the detriment of your career. You're going to move forwards faster in your career if you put others first and you provide them value. And you are going to be a large piece of evidence to prove that theory and show people that it is about putting others first and that can be to their benefit, but also to yours. So I'm very yeah. excited to talk about all of that and more, but let's start with the origin story of Sharon. So where would you like to begin? Well, first of all, I'm going to say that I actually met you a little bit before the OA because you were on a panel at Editor's Lounge with mm -hmm. Dan Lebenthal, who's one of my mentors who will come up in the story. Yeah, so we're going to talk about how in the world did we get somebody like Dan Lebenthal to be a mentor? But I do remember that, that the first time we kind of informally met yeah. uh, was you would approach me after doing that panel, which then led to us recognizing each other when we started the OA and the, the many yeah. stories that come afterwards. But I would say that that's definitely not your origin story. So mm -hmm. where do you want to begin with how it is that you ended up on this call? today? Well, I guess I think the, the relatable, the most relatable part of my origin story is that I didn't grow up here. I came as an outsider. I was born in New York, but I grew up in Israel since I was eight. So eight to 21, I was in Israel and you have to serve in the military mandatory service. And I was editing in high school. So I was able to get into the editing to the filming unit in the Air Force. And that's actually where I learned editing and Avid and all that. And when I when I finished my service, I was able to learn a little bit of an extra skill, After Effects. So I studied After Effects for half a year. And then I, I saved up money and worked in Israel and then moved to LA. It didn't have, didn't have any connections. So I think a lot of people in LA are transplants from other places. And, you know, we always get laughed at that without connections, we can't make it anywhere. And and it's not true. I don't know why, but I kind of firmly believed in myself that I can make that happen if I don't, even if I don't have it. So before I moved from Israel, I actually started doing research and Googling post houses in LA. And then I would go through all the Google results and just email my resume. And of course, nobody responded. But one person did respond, this Israeli guy who was a post house, a post supervisor. And because I'm from Israel and, you know, he's Israeli, he took a liking to me. We got contacting each other. And, and long story short, two weeks after I got here, I had a job. So it was from a Google search. And yeah, the economy crashed in the meantime. And so that was some, there were some hurdles there. But I was able to hit the ground running because I, I found somebody who I can connect with because of where I'm from. Yeah, and I think that that's such a key point is uh, the number one, I don't know what the numbers were, but I would guess that you sent out a lot of emails and a lot of resumes and the response rate is going to be fairly statistically close to 0%. But the person that did respond, it wasn't because they saw some important bullet point on your resume or some hard skill. It was, oh, somebody like me where we might have similar interests and conversations, right? That's so important. And what I want to point out is something that you said that I agree with, but I want to correct or tweak it a little bit, which is that people say that you can't make it without connections. I agree with them. 
The problem is we think that we either have the connections or we don't, as opposed to I have the power to create those connections. So when people say, oh, yeah, but it's all about who you know, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it is all about who you know, but, you can, get to know, but yeah. you can get to know people. That's always the thing is like, well, either I'm extroverted and I'm good at networking and I can build my network or I can't. People think they have some genetic deficiency to be able to network. I'm as extremely introverted as they come. Most people don't believe that. You know me well enough to at least be like, yeah, no, he, he actually is. But the, the point being that you do need a network, but you're somebody that said, I know I need a network. I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to make it. And that's the part about the story. And we're going to have many further uh, additions to that. But that core mindset of, I don't know anybody yet. Yeah. And it, it, I think it's kind of a recurring theme with me is when people, when there's like a, a, an obstacle in the way, instead of just being, oh, can't do it, I guess, won't do it. Then I'll just be like, well, how do I work around this? If I go even further back, my high school teacher who I admired and who was like almost a second father figure for me, laughed at me that I was even going to go into post-production and get into this Air Force filming unit because that was also connections only. And it really like I was taken aback that he didn't have that faith in me. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go prove him wrong and I'm going to get in there and I'm going to and I'm sure there's room if I have enough talent or whatever. And and I did. And, you know, it might be it might be um, it might be not cool, but I kind of say I saved his phone number so I could text him and tell him that I did it. But <laughs> well, good for you. And I think that that's an area where uh, you and I have a lot in common is that there's nothing I enjoy more than when somebody says I can't do something. That lights a fire under me. I'm like, okay, well, cool. If, if you believe that, then let's just, uh, let's see if that's true or not. And I know that you have that same fire. And that was one of the things that I think kind of, you know, just connected us in a way. Yeah, it begs the question is if it's a good thing that people tell you that, or if it's a bad thing that people tell you that, you know? I, I really think that at the end of the day, most people are telling you that with good intentions. I think it's because they, they want to make sure that you're going in a path that's going to be easy, that's going to be secure, that's going to be safe, that's going to be comfortable. And I think a teacher like, and I don't know the teacher, um, I think some of them might have ill intentions, but in general, I think it's a teacher that has your best interest in mind and thinking, well, well, you can't do that. Like, that's going to be too hard. And I want to make sure you, you choose something safe and something that you can do. So, you know, stick to your lane. I think that's said with good intentions, but I don't think that people realize how detrimental that can be when people actually listen to it. You heard it, but you didn't listen to it and you used that to your advantage to inspire you to do something that, you know, maybe has been done before, but isn't very common. So I actually want to dig into this a little bit further because we are going to see this recurring theme over and over. This is a story that I don't know yet. So talk to me about how you got into this coveted program in the Air Force and what you actually did, because I don't get a lot of people that trained in the Air Force on habit. So there's got to be at least a story here that's both relevant to what we're talking about, but also really juicy and interesting. Well, in Israel, which I think is a very smart approach, they choose majors in high school. So it's long before you have to make those decisions when it's really expensive. So you get to bounce around different subjects and feel what you like while you're still in high school. So I majored in theater and media studies. And I really loved theater at the time. And that was my obvious choice. And I didn't really want to do anything scientific. So the other leftover choice was media studies. And kind of as I was going along, I started falling out of love with theater and into love with media studies and specifically editing. 
So I was lucky enough. I know you can't, I'm not allowed to say lucky here, but. <laughs> oh, you've listened to the show more than once. I wasn't yeah. going to stop you. Go on. I'm a very uh, avid listener. I, I really like your podcast. So, but I think in this case, I was, I was in a really good position to discover that I want to be an editor at the age of 16. So I already like that. I was able to try all the different aspects of movie making and realize that I'm really good at editing and real and, and passionate about it. And it fits my brain where it's part creative and part analytical. So, okay, you're in Israel, you're 16, you want to be an editor. What do you do? So then I heard that there's these filming units in the military that are kind of like a post house, but in uniform. Uh, where your post supervisor is like your commander and the, the different divisions of the military have them. It's very hard to get into because, of course, everybody wants to do something in their military service that'll that'll help them in the future and utilize and, and help them train their skills of what they want to do. And there's not a lot of jobs like that. So I applied for the, the, the military units. You have to kind of apply to them in advance and submit. it's kind of like getting a job. You submit your portfolio and letters of recommendation and all that. And um, I applied for different ones. And then I eventually got into the Air Force one from a high school that wasn't a fancy art school from like without any connections. And just because they really liked me in the interview and I showed above and beyond, like I showed them storyboards that I drew for for, for stuff that I had like uh, shorts that I made in the high school, like really high end stuff for high school and a documentary I had edited. So they liked me and they brought me on and that was a really awesome experience. It's like, kind of like film school, but for free. And you get to edit real products for real clients. So you get to deal with the dumb client notes or people who don't understand filmmaking, but you still wanna make it interesting. We made tutorials for like the plane mechanics and for the pilots. So like I made a feature length film on how to take apart an F-16 engine and put it back together. Wow, and that's make, fascinating. I can, and make it I can not only boring. imagine like this this has got to be one of the coolest, most unique ways to go to a film school. And the the first image that came to my mind, and this will be a little bit of a tangent, but I'm fascinated by this. To know that you were uh, basically learning in what you call a post-production environment, but knowing that a commander in a very organized, regimented system like the Israeli military, and they're organizing it with military precision, military discipline, but building a post department out of it. What in the world were you thinking when you started working in this industry in the U.S.? Having come from that world to this one, seeing how things function or the lack thereof. You know, there's a lot more similarities than you think. That breaks You know, a lot of big organizations have some, you know, inefficiencies or protocols to follow just for the sake of protocols. So I'm not new to being aggravated about why is something done this way and not this other way. So I really had no problem adjusting to the industry. It, it actually, I think, is even better after going from a military thing where you have no choice. This is how we do things to an industry where if you can think of a better thing, they're open to it, you know? Well, I'm uh, uh, glad to hear that you were able to, to bring a lot out of that, but I was really hoping you were going to say like, yeah, there, there is a better way to do it. I saw the in the Israeli military, there's a much more efficient, effective use of our time and our energy, and I'm going to bring all of that to the, the total dysfunctional mess that we have uh, now. But, uh, you know, I guess everybody has their, their inefficiencies. There are aspects of that because – because I got two years of full-on experience on Avid, having to make real things, 
I learned Avid really well. And so when I moved out here and I worked in this really like crappy reality sh clip show and I was working with other people, I of course knew Avid tricks that they didn't know and they knew Avid tricks that I didn't know. So there was some mutual sharing of ideas. As I understand it, and you can uh, go a little bit deeper into this story, but you have a pretty interesting situation where with one of your first jobs that you got out here in this industry, you were told that it's basically customary standard practice that because I was able to help you get this job, I'm going to get half your paycheck. So it sounds like you learned a lot of really interesting life lessons about how the business really functions. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about the story, how you ended up in this situation and how you handled it. Yeah, well, one of my first jobs out here, somebody kind of knew that I was really new and knew that I didn't know what, how things functioned in LA. And they tried to tell me that that's the custom, that's how things are done around here. If I get you a job, I have a family to support, you have to pay me half your paycheck or your first, it was just, the, it was the first paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I remember kind of being outraged by that. And, you know, being in a vulnerable place of being new to LA and not knowing anybody else or not knowing very other people, then I kind of had no other choice but to do it. So I did it, but in my heart, I promised myself that if, I, if I'm ever in that position to help other people get their first or second or whatever job, I'm not gonna charge them. It's gonna be something that I do because it's the right thing to do and because I'm a good person and not because I'm trying to get anything out of it. Yeah, and we're, we're gonna talk a little bit later about the, the myriad of different things that you are either involved with now, that you have been involved with in the past, you'll be involved with in the future, with the core directive of improving the lives of the people that are in this industry for the better. But I want to put a pin in that for a second and continue to, to dig a little bit deeper into this origin story and learn more about these major benchmarks. So we have this, and I love by what, I'd never heard of this before, but this idea of you choosing a major in high school, like instantly I'm just like, duh, like, come on, why are we not doing that? In a way, I think that it at least maybe works this way in the some of the, the better areas. They kind of sort of unofficially are even doing that in middle school with my son, where he's very specifically in what's called a stage tech program. So he can learn, you know, how to run stage lights and stage managing for live events. And I'm like, when I was in middle school, it was history and math and science, like all the generic stuff. So maybe we're getting keen to this, but I've yet to hear of even high schools that have you pick a major. So I think that's absolutely brilliant. Um, but we take you through this journey from being in the military, coming out to the industry in the U.S. We've got somebody here that takes advantage of you. You've taken a really important life lesson from it. Now walk us through some of the, the next stages of you starting at the very bottom and kind of climbing up to where it is that you are now. Okay, so I my first job was reality shows and that kind of got me in this circle of reality television and assisting in reality. And the nice thing about being a transplant is that I would go back to Israel once a year and, and visit my family and friends. And that kind of provided me like an unofficial status check because every year I'd go back and they'd be like, so how's it going? What are you working on? And I'd be like, I'm assisting in reality. I'm assisting in reality. I'm assisting in reality for three years. And I was like, hold on, I I'm keep saying this, but I don't want to be doing this. Why am I still doing this? And it made me stop and realize, oh, wait, this this doesn't just course correct as I if, as I work. I have to actively like navigate this thing. So I saved a bunch of money on one of the last reality shows I did. And then I went to the executive producer and just said, 
all right, so this is my last show. I'm not coming back. And also because they didn't want to promote, they, they couldn't promote me to edit because they didn't have the, they, did, they didn't hire the editors. So she told me, wait, you're leaving and you don't have another job lined up. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm leaving. And so. <laughs> How could you? you? You Don't you know, Sharon, that you should just be lucky to have a job? And I you know. should just be thankful because there are so many people out there that would be grateful to have that opportunity. So how dare you? I know. I know. It's. Did you uh, have any of those thoughts? It doesn't seem like you did. But did you have any of those doubts or like, should I do I need a job to not come back? Like, because that, that's that's very, very bold, especially for somebody as young as you were in your career to be like, nope, I don't have anything lined up. Peace out. Well, I think I've I learned very quickly in this industry that it's freelance. It, it you know you you find jobs as you go, and so I understood that if I'm already working, I'm not able to find a job that I want because I'm already working. And even if I'm able to still look for a job while I'm working, which I can't because it's too hard, it's like I'm I usually put my all into my job. You know, it's not ideal. You want to be able to free up so that you can really focus. And and especially when I realized, OK, I only got reality shows because that's my circle of contacts now. I need to disconnect out of the circle and build a new circle with new contacts. And and I need time to do that. I can't be working while I'm trying to figure out all these meetups and these social groups that I need to now be part of. I think that's exactly when I met you for the first time is when I started going to these editing events like Editor's Lounge. And the, the key component here that I think stops so many people is something that you mentioned, but it was almost kind of like an afterthought. And it could literally be not only an entire podcast conversation, it could even shameless promotion become an eight week boot camp that I'm currently building, which is the fact that you said, I saved a bunch of money so I could say no and have time. Right. And the sticking point for so many is, well, it's really hard to build this network, but I need to have the job so I can have the money, but I need to have the time. It's just, it's this endless catch 22. And what I always tell everybody is you need to have the money to have the freedom to say no to the wrong projects and the wrong people. So you have the time, as you said, to design your path towards the right project. So it was, it was kind of an afterthought that you mentioned, and it's so huge. You need to have the financial freedom to be able to walk away without the next gig. So you have the time to focus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and also, as you always say, is like just crafting a new circle of contacts that's going the, up the right ladder. You have a lot of research you need to do of the people that will help you get there and, and the kinds of contacts you should have so that, that all, all that research takes time. Another thing that people don't do often or like a lot of people don't realize until much later in their life that they should now collect unemployment insurance when you're doing this because it is meant for that. It's money that you have already earned that's set aside for you when you're not working. And so I've met a lot of people who never thought they deserved to claim on unemployment when they when they totally could have. It's the way the system is built. That's the whole reason that it's there. You're not stealing or taking advantage. That's literally the reason that it exists. I don't want to go into any of the the specifics or the systems or whatnot, but I'm curious, in your mind, when you were saying that I want the freedom to say no to all the wrong projects or people, and I need to be able to afford it, did you give yourself a time limit? Was it like, I need to save to give myself three months, six months? I don't know how long it's going to be. Like, in general, what were you thinking? This is how long I say no while I take the time to focus and build my network. I didn't put a strong limit on it. I knew that I have the safety net 
of the people who I knew, like if I fail, if I run out of savings, I can always go back. So I, I, I was pretty flexible. I looked at, I kept an eye on my finances and I just kept going, uh, hoping for the best. Maybe that's not the best goal, but, or the best strategy, but you know, I just, I knew, I kept saying, having to say no. So it gave me a good uh, indicator of the intervals in which I could say yes, if I had to, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, uh, I think uh, another really key point of this that a lot of people miss is they think that it's either or. I'm going to say no to the reality assistant jobs so I can say yes to building my network and finding a new opportunity. But once I say no to it, it's gone. I burned all the ships and I can never go back. It's like, make a couple of phone calls and you can probably find the paycheck jobs if you need them. There's always work to be done, but people just think it's binary. People still liked your work. People still appreciated your work on something. It's not like that goes away. Yeah, and I I would imagine, and maybe you didn't find it in this specific instance, but in general, I would guess you've been very strategic about your yeses and nos to get where you are as quickly as you have. Has there has there ever been a fear where you thought to yourself, well, but if I say no to them, they're never going to call me again, and I'm going to burn the bridge? And instead, you see the opposite, which is, oh, now they actually want me more. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of how I felt. I didn't really care so much about the reality context anymore because I already felt like I. It's funny because you say how I got here so quickly, but in my mind, it took me forever, and I had all these mm-hmm. obstacles. And there's three years in reality to me was too too long since I didn't want to. Nothing against reality; it just wasn't what I set out to do. So to me, it's it's just like it took as long as it took. I could it have taken shorter, to in my eyes, probably. But I guess you know. I guess on the from look on the outside, it looks like I I got there quickly. But actually, I said no and re, rerouted my path multiple times. It wasn't just this one time with the reality television because I did that again later. All right. So then let's go into that. Let's talk about this reroute route rerouting more than once because it's not a matter of I didn't want to do this. Now I'm where I want to be, and I'm going to be here for 45 years. Yeah. The world isn't designed that way anymore. So we have to learn the meta skill of being able to chart the path, surround ourselves with the network, get where we want to get, and then realize, all right, either I got what I wanted out of it or this wasn't the best choice. Now I have to do it again. So you've done this more than once. So right. talk about to where, where else you've had to do this. So I was in reality and then I switched over and I started by assisting on some indie films. And that's we can segue into how I met Dan because that's kind of where that fits in. But overall, to answer this question, I segued into indie films. I worked on two indie films for like maybe two years, maybe three years total, two indie films. And both of them either came out way, way later or didn't come out for years. And like, or and there was like a lot of uh, stop and go, had to go on reshoots and stuff. And I felt, man, I'm working so hard on these indie films that might not even be released, you know, like, and I won't ha- I'll have nothing to show for it. I should go into television. I also missed, in the reality world, I missed the big family of people that I worked with. And on indie films, it was just me and one other person. So then I did that again. I stopped working on indie films and I only applied and only pursued TV gigs until I was able to work with Chris McCaleb on Fear the Walking Dead, the interstitial. They had a little, like a little web program, uh, but it was with everybody on the show. And then I, I did a bunch of shows after that, just as a fill-in or whatever. And then that brought me to work as a first full season on the OA. 
And that was, I was the lead assistant editor first on and everything. And then if we're sticking to this theme of rerouting after the OA, it was a very long assisting gig. It was nine months for me. Um, and I wasn't sure, and I ended up not being uh, promoted to editor on season two. I realized that I can't wait. I can't wait around and hope to be promoted because of my good work. There's all these parameters outside of my control that will prevent me from being promoted. I should just start editing regardless. So then I rerouted again and turned down all assisting gigs other than ones for my healthcare and pension. Like uh, once a year, I started editing indie stuff uh, at home to learn Premiere and to start racking up editing credits. And then, you know, the, 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 the finessing of your path keeps going. Then you want to stop doing non-union films that you want to stop doing, you know, certain budget stuff that you, you want your rate to be higher. So it's always a fine tuning of where you want to go. But again, the common theme, I've decided this is no longer the fit. So I need to find time so I can build a new network, prove myself to the right people, and I can make this shift which essentially has led you to where you are now. And you it's funny because you talked about, oh, I worked on and edited some indie films. There's a pretty big part of that story that's going to be relevant to today's theme that you left out. And I don't know if that's you're being overly humble or you figured maybe we were going to get to it eventually. But talk about one of those recent indie films and what ended up happening for you with that film. Well, the funny thing is it's not very recent. It's actually the very first film I edited after the OA. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. It in, must just be because of the timeline of indies. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's really interesting. In, in 2017, I edited uh, Lupe, which is an indie film that was almost no budget. I edited it in Premiere because I also wanted to learn Premiere. I did it remotely before that was cool <laughs> because the directors are in Boston. And also they kind of wrote it, but the script was very much not what they shot because there was a lot of improv. There's a real trans actor or non-actor in the film. So they wanted her to feel comfortable. So there was a lot of improv. And basically I was given a hard drive with scenes and told make a movie. So, and, and don't read the script because it doesn't match at all. So uh, that was an excellent exercise going out of assisting and starting to really sharpen the editing brain. Um, I did that for a year. And so we finished it in 2018, 2019. It went to some festivals. It premiered at Cinequest in 2020. It went to some virtual festivals. And then we kind of thought it was done. You know, there's no big names. There's no big like anything, not behind the scene, not in front not behind the camera, not in front, there's no big names and there's no big budget. So we kind of thought that was the end. But in 2020, or near the end of 2020, because I guess HBO Latino was looking for more uh, content, they bought the movie and released it on it. So it aired on HBO Latino and it, and, and it, uh, got, it went online on HBO Max in 2021. And because that happened, I was able to submit it for uh, award consideration because I was super proud of the editing on it, um, especially having to reconfigure the story or like actually kind of almost rewrite the story in editing. So I submitted it for an Eddie and it got a nomination. So I was nominated for an Eddie Award in 2021. And it was like, it was such a dream come true and an honor for me. And it, it also shortened the way into ACE, which has been a dream come true as well. So I'm now an American Cinema Editor's editor. 
My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. So there, there's a lot of stuff that I want to unpack uh, in between all that that's really, really important and relevant to this larger conversation about providing value. We're going to get to it in a second. But I want to understand staying within this realm of making these transitions and very deftly navigating career paths, I'm assuming coming off of an Ace Eddie nomination. And congratulations, by the way, because I didn't know a lot of the details of the story. I kind of knew the superficial ones, mm -hmm. uh, but I love the story even more now. But the assumption is with anybody that hasn't read your bio, well, clearly you must be working on either higher profile indie films or you're now on studio films. Is that the case? No, it, I mean, are you talking about these specific indies? I mean, no, I'm talking about what it is that you're doing currently. Oh, currently I'm an editor on a show for Fox 911 season mm -hmm. six. From the outside perspective, the reason that I bring this up is that a lot of times, and this is an exercise I take my students through all the time, is that you can just start with somebody's IMDb pro page. And if you're wondering what was their path, because everybody has a unique path, but I really believe underneath the path, it's a very similar formula for just about everybody to kind of demystify it. But there are then certain people, you look at an IMDb Pro page and you're like, uh, what the hell? I am oh. one of them. And you, you, I think, are also in that category of like, so from this to that to that, talk, how do we get from Lupe and from very, you know, tiny, quote unquote, indie film and Eddie nomination to a very, you know, standard network television show on for a network. How does that happen? This is a very poetic story, actually. So when I was trying to transition out of assisting, I went to meetups. There was a and I met this guy who was this kind of starving indie film editor. 
and we were kind of griping to each other about our situations and he was struggling financially and he wanted to edit more studios or he wanted to work on more studio stuff and he was willing to assist but he couldn't break in he's just this indie film editor and i was stuck uh assisting and i wanted to edit so i told him listen and he would tell me i'm you know i have too many indies coming my way i i, I don't know what to do with them but i don't feel bad i don't want to turn them down so I told him, listen give me one of the indie films that you don't have time to do i'll do it i want to prove myself i want the editing credit and so lupe was that movie that he uh wasn't he wasn't able to do and he passed it on to me he stayed uh supervising editor on it and i did you know everything he, he he gave me notes he would stay involved and we became really good friends and i also learned premiere on that project well then a show called z nation looked for editors who were willing to go on location and who knew premiere and because and they, they all had they had a ton of guys already. They wanted at least one woman to, to round out the team. And so I got the job. When I worked on Z Nation, I met this other editor, Greg Serrata, who was working on another other episodes. And we became friends because we were both brought in from L.A. And I don't know if anybody here knows what it's like to work on location, but it can be kind of lonely whenever all the people in the area go home to their families. So we became friends in uh, on location. And then now, after Z Nation, he got hired on 911 season two. And he said, Listen, I know you're an editor, but do you want to assist me on this gig? And I was like, No, actually, I want to keep pursuing editing jobs. But there's this other guy who's this indie editor who would really love to start assisting. And he's really good with sound design. And I know you really want sound design. Um, meet him, Brian, meet Greg. And it was a bromance. They did so well together. And then within a season, Brian became an editor on the show too. So fast forward to now, they had a seat open up. Greg gave me a call and said, hey, Sharon, do you want to join on 911 team? And I said, of course. And so now I'm working with Greg and with Brian and with Charles and with a bunch of other people who I love on this show. And it's such a closed circle where I helped Brian and Brian helped me. And now we're both working on a show together. Yeah, and I love this whole idea of all of this coming together where you or Brian or anybody else in this story is trying to help the other person, put them in a position where they can move them forwards, but also know that they're providing value and filling that gap. But there's one part of this that I'm very curious about. With hindsight, knowing what ended up happening to Brian, would you have done one season of assisting to get bumped up to editor? I was, I thought they, about that. If they had that. guaranteed it, if they had said, you could, if Greg said you get one season, you're going to be an assistant and then I guarantee you'll cut, would you have, and I'm going to put this in quotes for people listening, would you have taken a step backwards so you could go back to editor a year later? I'm going to divert a little bit. So in 2020, of course, it was a depressing year for many people. And for me also, I, I was just starting to build momentum and getting some interviews as an editor, but on like union shows, but they fell falling through. And I remember even meeting you for a digital hot seat at one point during uh, Eddie's or Edit Fest or something. Mm -hmm. And you, we were talking and then you were like, just keep doing what you're doing. And, and, like you had Isn't no advice. Just the worst advice. It's so annoying. Remember I tell that to that? my students all the time. Yes, you I probably, say it all the time. But you probably, I don't know if you remember that. I was I remember chatting. Stuck. I don't remember giving the advice, but I remember chatting, yes. Yeah, so I was very stuck and depressed and like not sure what to do. And so you said, just keep doing what you're doing. 
And in that time frame, I was thinking, huh, I wish I maybe I should have stayed and done that season for Greg and I would have been bumped up. And there were a few other shows and projects similar where I could have done that and and someone else did and got bumped up. But you know what? I wouldn't have had this other stuff that I edited as experience. And in the end, I did wind up editing on, on 911. So you know, it, it worked out. I don't think you could dwell too much on what if. You just have to do what's true to you. Some people have to take a step back and that's totally okay. But, you know, it doesn't mean that it's wrong not to. Well, speaking of hindsight, are you glad that you kept doing what you were doing? Yes, yes. I've got, I, have, I have a multitude of students right now that are in the square center of it's never going to happen. And my advice is you're doing everything right just keep doing what you're doing. And they have that doubt of, I don't know. And I'm just, I've I've seen it happen over and over and over. I know the difference between your strategy sucks and you need to change your strategy. You need to change your systems versus everything you're doing is right. You just need time. That's it. I'm not ashamed to say I've, I've spent a few days, if not more like curling up in bed, you know, in despair of what's going to happen to my career. And you know, no one's going to ever hire me and, and all that stuff. I'm not uh, foreign to it at all. And it's crazy what a year or two can do just from the universe and how things work out. And a movie that I did four years ago or whatever, suddenly coming back to my life, you know? Yeah. And I, I want to talk about that because there there's a part of it where, and this is going back to uh, something I put a pin in, this use of the word lucky. A lot could say, boy, you sure got lucky. Your first indie film was nominated for an Eddie? That's amazing. Well, that must be nice. Let's talk a little bit more about all of the hidden components behind the scenes that while we can't definitively prove are the reason, are probably one of the reasons that you had so much support to get that nomination because it takes other people to both recognize the work, but also recognize the name behind the work. Because for those that don't see kind of the the awards machine behind the scenes, the paradox of choice and the analysis paralysis is very, very real. It's one thing to see nominations publicly and say, oh, there are five options here, and I can objectively make my own personal decision by watching these five options. But to get nominations, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of submissions it is literally impossible to watch everything and objectively say, here is the best craft in this specific category. So it again comes down to relationships. So this we're going to kind of be reverse engineering to an end result, but this is really getting us squarely into this conversation of what it truly means to provide value to others first and how that can circle back around. So what's your theory, and I think you have a pretty good working theory, of why you probably ended up getting nominated for something most people had never seen or heard of before it wasn't put in front of them? So I guess I should backtrack and say that in 2017, someone without asking me, nominated me for the Editor's Guild Board of Directors. And I had no idea what that meant. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll run and see what happens. And then I somehow got elected and started serving. And I only thought that I have to attend meetings and just like say my opinion if asked or something. But I didn't realize that the Board of Directors actually can do, you know, passes decisions and does things for the membership. And this goes back to what I was saying about wanting to help people because it's the right thing to do and having people have an easier way up than I did. 
paving the way, you know. And so I started doing stuff as part of the board of directors. I especially started helping people with their uh, hours for healthcare. For people outside of the industry, uh, you need a certain to work a certain amount of hours so that you have healthcare continuously every year. And so sometimes when we fall shy, like 10 or five hours or whatever, it's kind of crazy where people and their whole families can lose their health care. So I was kind of upset by that because I would see this happen to people I knew. And I was like, we need to create a system to to address this, some sort of buffer system. And I always really am a believer of what people are always saying, that you are the union and that we have to look out for each other. And so I was like, why can't we help each other keep our hours? Sometimes people need somebody and it doesn't matter who is going to be. So why can't someone matchmake and find people who need hours and people who need workers? So I started this Facebook group where people can submit anonymously through me and they're not embarrassed to say, hey, I need some hours. And so I would post on their behalf and kind of connect people. Well, that's great. But what if I'm busy? This needs to be a self-sustaining program. So I joined the Editors Guild website committee and I was able to convince the website committee and the board to create an area on the website called Member to Member where um, we people can list if they need hours. And so anybody can go and see, oh, I need a guy for a weekend or I need somebody to cover me. Who's on the MPI hours list? And then they feel good about helping other people. And then it just happens automatically and I don't need to, to do anything. I don't even know how many people are being helped because it's just happening you know, on its own. So that kind of caused something I didn't expect. People now knew me as the healthcare gal, like the person who, you know, people would come to me when they need hours or people who were getting helped also wanted to help other people. So it was like this pay it forward thing, which was nice. And like people were coming up to me on the lot during my lunch break, who I didn't even recognize saying, hey, you're Sharon, right? You do the healthcare thing. And I'm like, cool, (laughs) I guess. But I'm just happy that I was able to help people, people who were couples who were about to give birth and they were going to run out of the health insurance right before the birth and people who were dealing with cancer treatments, all sorts of crazy, amazing stories that the community was able to come together and help them uh, without even knowing that they had to, that had they were dealing with that. So I guess that kind of put my name out there and also on the board as being a board representative, but I do still think that if the art itself wasn't good enough, if the product, if the movie itself was not well edited, I would not have gotten that nomination. But I did get people to watch it when it was up for submission because they knew I, I worked on it and they were curious. So, you know, while I, I think there was a contribution to my name being known, it wasn't the sole con- contributor because I think the work itself was strong. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Because I didn't want to give the impression, well, hey, great, great uh, job using your networking skills to get yourself a nomination, right? Because if the work sucked, all those people that you had helped would have watched it and said, oh, boy, okay, so sure glad I got my hours, but she can't cut her way out of a paper bag, right? You wouldn't have <laughs> the nomination. So, But my point is you also need both. Because I think the the assumption that I hear from so many people, whether it's early in their careers, when they have this vision, I'm going to be on the stage someday too, and that's what I'm working towards, All I need to do is create great work. 
You can't just create great work and put it out there into a vacuum and assume people are going to discover your work. And based on the merit of your creative choices alone, you will get a nomination. It does not work that way. There are entire machines. Studios are spending millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to get the right screeners in front of the right people at the right time so they can make sure people are watching the right things to then make it based on merit. So it's a much larger and more complicated machine. And for you, this my guess is that the odds of somebody having known about this and there being buzz based on the merit alone never would have happened, right? It doesn't speak to the, the quality of your work. It speaks to the, to the fact that it was on HBO, Max, Latina, and like it's no, like you said, there was no names in front of or behind the camera. So the reason people made the choice, and this is the really important part, the reason that people said, my time is valuable and I'm willing to dedicate 90 minutes of my life to watching this is the value that Sharon, Sharon brought to my life first. Then they saw the merit of your work and that combination of the two together, I believe is probably a big part of why you got to where you did with the nomination. There's one other thing that I wanna point out very, very quickly. It's a little bit of a tangent, but I swear to God it needs to be said because when you mentioned this, it just, it really angered me. You didn't anger me, but the concept did. The fact that people can be embarrassed that they need hours, how broken is our system that somebody is embarrassed that they don't have enough hours to keep their health care. Oh, believe me. I, I can't even get started with the fact that that's an emotion that we are even allowed to have and we are conditioned to think is okay. And the I fact that you're helping to change that, I really appreciate. I come I come from public health care in Israel. Mm -hmm. so I bet. I, so you're just like, seriously, I'm scratching my head like this is a thing? I mean, it's insane. I had but, I had a lot of adjustment to go through when I moved to the U.S. And, and the fact that that people may not be able to have healthcare just because they work in a certain job is insane. Yeah, and the reason that I bring that up is that it's a small part of a much larger issue, which is I'm embarrassed I don't have my hours, or I'm embarrassed that I'm exhausted and I'm burned out, or I'm embarrassed that I'm depressed or that I suffer from anxiety. These are all conditions of being in a system that's so completely broken and beyond repair. And the reason I love having these conversations is because I'm hoping Somebody's listening to the conversation right now thinking, I've been feeling really ba bad about the fact that I'm missing my hours and scared I'm going to lose them, but I'm embarrassed to reach out. This is the system's fault. This is not yours. Right. What, I want, what I want everybody to do, and like this would be an example, fuck the system. This is your fault. I need my hours. Can somebody help me because I'm in the middle of a broken system? Yeah. This isn't about us. We didn't screw this up. We're not the problem. It's a lot to navigate. You have to also think about the the whole social media aspect and people want to project success, project mm -hmm. that they're that they're successful. So posting, you know, in a group with thousands of people, I need hours, please help me. It kind of it, it, it bursts the success bubble a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so and I've had like, you know, award winning editors come up to me quietly and tell me that they need hours. You know, and, and I, I'm aware that, that they need to be accommodated for in, in a discreet way because it's kind of a delicate balance. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, maybe it's not warranted. Maybe nobody would look down on them if they said they need hours or maybe maybe it, it is. Everybody's situation is different. But what I felt like was the good compromise is that list on the Guild website. It's kind of tucked away and it's in a tab. And, you know, if if you really want to go look and see who needs hours, you can, but it's not blasted out or posted anywhere, you know? So, so I'm I, assuming then 
Yeah. This is the, you know, it's the, this is the one idea that you had that you've implemented and you've now just, you know, walked away and said, well, I did that and I did my thing. Now I'm going to focus on my career. Or are there other things that you've done for the union and for the members and the people in this industry that they might not be aware you spearheaded the whole thing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, the funny thing is kind of, it's a little bit like a drug. You know, I, I did something and it was super helpful for people and especially the job board. I mean, the, the, the MPI hours list is nice, but really what was a game changer was putting a job board on the Guild website. And so I'm very, very proud of that and the website committee. But it, you kind of like, oh, what more can we do now? Like, how more can we like improve things and push for things? I think this uh, and I, I remember I think I e introduced you with Kathy, but our union leader, Kathy Rapola, mm-hmm. when I was very early on in my board, you know, term, my first board term, I kind of um, was hanging, we were hanging out at, at like a event and I said to her, you know, it's really weird about this healthcare hours. Like, I wish we could do something. And she was like, you know, I, I, I agree. I think I wish we could do something too. And I was like, wait, you're, you're not the one who does, who makes all the decisions. And then it turns out we are the union and, and, oh, wait, I'm a board member. Oh, wait, this is a me thing. I need to go and think about this and how we can, you know, and, and, and work with her to make this happen. And that really empowered me. It was all from like this kind of, I had this like Spider-Man meme thing. I was like, wait, you're not the one. And I'm, and then it's like, I'm the one, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Isn't it amazing though, to have that realization where you just assume, well, if things are going to change, there's, there's nothing that I could do, but I'm sure that whether it's a president or an executive or whatever structure we're talking about, as long as I could get to them, things would change. This idea of the top down uh, hierarchy, right? If we can get things to change from the top down, well, then we're all going to be taken care of. And as we've seen, and this is going to be the next uh, kind of direction that I want to go with this conversation, is this philosophy that I've had for years, and the reason I do what I do now, is that if there's going to be fundamental systemic change into the way that we conduct ourselves and we do business and we find a more sustainable way to do the work that we love in this industry, it has to change from the ground up. And to go to the top of, you know, maybe not the top of the union, so to speak, but the top of one of the guilds that's a powerful guild in a powerful union to be like, yeah, wouldn't that be nice if that stuff could happen? You're like, whoa, this fundamentally changes my understanding of how things get done. Oh, maybe it is my own responsibility to actually do something about this and not wait for others to fix the problem. Right. It's also, I've had that similar realization. It's also, yeah, it's also a realization on the her role and my role, like that it's always, I think for people who aren't very well versed in, in unions or whatever, like, she is not dictating the policy of everything. And, you know, she is not the sole decision maker. Uh, there's a board of directors that is in charge and, and who hire her. And so it was this realization that I'm a board member and I have a voice in this too. And, you know, it's not just on me, but it's also on me to come up with a plan if I really care about this. You know, of course, Kathy also cared about this and Kathy was is doing many other things that she cares about, but it's my job to help her and to provide ideas and also ways to do the ideas. It's not just to think about, let's do this and then leave everybody else to figure it out. It's about coming up with a feasible plan and then helping follow through with it. So that just kind of got me excited to do more things 
And I don't know exactly which one you're alluding to, but when the contract negotiations started, there was, uh, you covered this in your podcast, there was a big strike authorization vote coming up. And it was very imperative that we get a high response rate and also a high uh, yes vote turnout. And I saw that there was going to be a rally happening in New York. I saw there was going to be something happening in Atlanta, but nothing in Hollywood, even though it was kind of focused around the Hollywood locals, but also the other unions across the country or the other locals. So it was like this late night text that I was like, hey, could we use the Guild parking lot? Because I remember there was a member three years ago, well, now four years ago, who would just draw on her car in support of the contract. But she did that on her own, Selena Alvarez. And she did that on her own. Nobody else did it. She posted photos. I thought that was cool. And I remembered that. And I was like, let's do this en masse. Let's have, let's use the parking lot and just have cars drive through and paint on them. And uh, even you, you were there. Yes, so, I was. I'm still chipping little pieces of that paint off to this day. Oh, no, we need to teach you how to remove it. Yeah, no, I clearly <laughs> didn't know what I was doing. I think I just sent it through a car wash and uh, it's uh, to this day a little, uh, you know. I think you can shave it. You, I think you yeah. can shave it. Wh- which I, did. I thought it was like soap. Like when they use the soap at the car wash, I'm like, oh, this wash off. I had, I was a moron. That we get to do an entire podcast on my inability to manage stupid daily decisions like that. But what, essentially what you're alluding to is where I wanted to go next is that this goes far bigger now than just providing value to a couple of people in your circle or even providing value to the members of your your guild by creating these services. Uh, And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the next major direction that I see you going and that I think is absolutely imperative for all of us to understand is that if things are going to change, and yes, right now this is a union conversation. I think this conversation goes far beyond just talking about union politics. But if we're going to keep it within union politics for a second, the only way things are going to change if if it's no longer local against local and it's all of the locals united and realizing that it's not editors versus DPs versus the camera department versus the costume local. It's we are creative human beings in this industry trying to not only survive, but thrive and do it sustainably. And what's stopping us is all of the constraints that the quote unquote producers or studios are putting on us. The only way we do it is together. And you're one of those voices that's spearheading, bringing together all of these disparate little guilds and locals into one unified voice. Right. Um, So basically what happened from this car paint that was just me and a bunch of other people who were the the, uh, young workers group of of Local 700, Kathy was game. We did the, the, uh, the the first weekend and it was, it blew up so much that the media showed up. Uh, the uh, IATSC vice president showed up and gave a speech and a ton of members across locals came to volunteer to paint on cars. And, and it was so heartwarming because, as you know, Zach, not a lot of them ever meet post people. And so this was the first time where a lot of them have ever met us. And our people were walking around that parking lot, rubbing their eyes in disbelief that all these other locals were coming in and chipping in and driving through. And we painted hundreds of cars um, and it, it got so successful. It expanded to another weekend. And, and, and it was the beginning of a very strong dialogue and, and really good friendships that I've created with members and other locals. And, and that's the key to fair bargaining for next time is that we ought to do come in united and we know each other and we know what our work life is like, like what struggles do they deal with? What struggles do we deal with? 
And we all come in knowing that. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core 360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. So here's the next thing that I want to dig into that is going to maybe kind of somewhat sort of stay within union politics, but I want to think bigger as well. If I'm listening to this right now and I'm hearing all the things that you're saying, all of this is great and you're inspiring me, but you're a member of the board and you have all these inside connections and you're doing all these union things. How could I possibly make a difference? Well, what can I do if I want to be a part of creating this positive systemic change both for me, but the people around me, whether it's just my colleagues, co-workers. I'm not a member of the board of directors, and I don't know people in guilds and whatnot, so I, I can't really do anything. Ah, uh, that's not true, Zach. Let me tell you how. So I did. I started doing the healthcare thing even before I was really on the board, or not even as a board member. I just did it. I just started a Facebook group, and so things can happen if you just do. There are if you're a member of the union. I also help think up the idea of a volunteer page. So editorsguild.com slash volunteer, that's where members can sign up for tasks. And it doesn't, you don't have to be on a committee. You don't have time to do committee meetings and all that. There are so many different tasks that that, that, that need to be done. There's uh, people who need to do the texting campaigns when we're doing texting for really important messages. There's social media amplifiers. If we really need someone to, we really need to emphasize a message or a post, then it's two seconds to just share a post. There's, you could do a record voiceover when we're going to create educational materials. There's all this stuff that uh, is sorted by time commitment. So that's if you're a member. You could also be a steward. I won't get into it, but the, if you're a member, there's a volunteer page and it's all sorted by time commitment. If you're a supporter, I mean, there's so many picket lines that need need bodies. You know, there's there's petitions that need signing. Right now, the SNL post-production team is trying to uh, get an IATSC contract. There's a petition out there for it. There's so many ways that supporters can help. There's always like, you know, fundraising and you know, there's a lot of things that anybody can do. So I don't agree with that. If I'm not 
in the union or in the know, you could still do so much. And it's actually very helpful for people outside of the know to speak up because it's easy for us to have this narrow view of how things work and understanding and just assume that everybody understands. But it's a lot, it's very helpful when members say to me, hey, this thing on the website doesn't make sense. I don't understand how to get to navigate from here to there. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's not super intuitive, is it? And it's easy for me to not know that because I know where it is. But if I see it from their perspective, then that helps. So it's actually really valuable for non-active people to start getting active. Some of those resources I wasn't even aware of, uh, and I'm very glad that we were able to share them and people know that they're there. So I'm glad that there are more options for people to get involved. But all I heard with all the things you were listening was, oh, God, sounds like a lot of time. I'm just trying to survive right now. I'm just trying to put in my 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I've got my family and most importantly, with the little time that I have left over between working a crazy job and trying to manage my family, I gotta get out there and I gotta build connections so I can get the next gig. So I just, I, I don't think, I, there's just not enough time, not enough hours in the day for me to be able to volunteer. What do you think about that? Well, they kind of go together, you know, aside from actually being something that's good to do because it's the right thing to do because you're helping and serving your greater good, you're also networking. There's a lot of really great people on the board of directors. There's Oscar nominees and all sorts of uh, amazing people who edit amazing things on the board of directors, on the committees, who are shop stewards, who are texters, who are whatever, who are the young workers group, who are, you know, and, and so you can meet them continuously while you're volunteering, you do two birds, one stone. Yeah, and that, that's ex I've, I assumed that you were going to go in that direction, and I was trying to, to feed you and gently nudge you that way, but I'm so glad that you hit that so eloquently. I'll, I'll, do, I'll take you one step further. Yes, please, go ahead, continue. Is people want to know that you're a good person, and you are showing them, not telling them that you're a good person by doing good. And... Let me tell you, I, after the nomination, I started talking to agencies and I interviewed and I ended up signing with innovative artists and they actually really cared about the stuff I do with the union. And they were really interested that I came up with that car painting event. They were like, we still see those cars everywhere. That's you. And I was like, yep. And guess what? They pitched me to a show. They pitched me to a producer and told them, not about the cars, I think, but about the, the healthcare hours. And I got asked about it in a job interview. They asked, they, they, a producer actually cared that I was helping other members finding hours for their healthcare. And they asked me to speak about it. And I was like, whoa, there's kind hearted producers out there. Mm -hmm. and, that, and I was just going to point that out. This is so key because it's so easy to make the assumption, well, the producers and the directors and the writers, they don't care about any of that stuff. And guess what? Some of them don't. Some of them just want to get their credits and they want to make their money and get their awards. And that's just the way that the industry is. And that's fine. But when you put a very specific energy out into the world, that energy is reciprocated back to you. So what you did by putting good out into the world is you attracted the good producers and the good directors that also want to bring good and positive impact in the world and simultaneously make some money and earn some credits and work on some cool stuff. But they also see the greater value in providing value to people first. So right. by putting yourself out there, you attract really cool people in return, which I didn't realize when I started doing this. 
but the number of cool, amazing human beings that I have in my life now, because I just put myself out there, you attract more people with that similar energy. And you're now seeing that it's not just about, well, I'm doing good in the world. And that's one part of my life. The other part of my life is just the endless rat race to get the next job and the next gig and the next paycheck and the next credit. These two can intertwine and it can be the same objective. Because ultimately, I think a lot of producers want good people on their show. And so, you know, what a better way to show that you're a good person by having all this stuff that you've done without an expectation of return just because it was the right thing to do. You're showing and not telling. Um, you know, it, I think it makes sense for them to want good people on their shows and not assholes. Mm -hmm. Well, good people are going to want good people on their shows, right? The assholes are going to want anybody that they can get that can do the job that's going to allow them to take advantage of their talents and their time and exploit them. And there's plenty of people out there. But yeah, good people want to work with good people. It so was just can... kind of amazing to me that it was so much so that my agency actually pitched me on based on the good that I that I did. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So again, I, I want to just really hammer this point home. This is not more hours in your day. This is not, well, I've got all these hours that I have to work. Then I have to go out there and I have to find the work and I've got to go to the networking events or the panels or whatever. And now I've got to find more time to volunteer. No, it's th these are not all mutually exclusive and adding more hours on your calendar you're able to combine all of them such that a part of designing the path you want in your career is providing value to others to help them move forwards on their paths. It all comes together and works together and it's like magic. You don't believe it until you see it happen. Once you believe it happened, it's like you said, it's a drug. You become addicted to it, which is why eight years and over 300 podcast episodes later, I still do it. Not because I make money being a podcaster. To this day, I've yet to figure out how to actually earn a profit with my podcast. It still at best breaks even, but the amount of good that it puts out there, but more importantly, the amount of amazing human beings I have met because I have a podcast, I would never in a million years take any of this back. So let me that, ask that's you, let me really ask cool you, part. Yeah, let sure. me ask, let me ask you something. It's kind of a rhetorical question, but. What do you think is a better networking opportunity? Meeting somebody at a bar for like in a mixer with a lot of people and music and stuff and talking to them for five minutes and have them talking to other people and then kind of everybody forgetting about everything or being in a committee and working together on a project over a bunch of meetings and actually doing some volunteer work like a bunch of locals got together and painted homeless youth center. Uh, together. Yeah. And in, so in, my, in my mind, there's there's no question which one of these is better. And I actually, this is a really good question. I'm glad that you brought this up. And I want to break down why. I want people to understand the tremendous difference between these two. And both of them, by the way, are networking. People hate the word networking. It just kind of gives them a pit in their stomach. Oh, I hate networking. I'm not bad at networking. Both of these are networking. Here's the difference. One is collecting transaction and contacts. The second is building relationships. So if you're gonna go, and let, let's just assume you don't know who's gonna be at either. So I'm gonna take out the strategic factor of the right people that I wanna build a relationship are gonna be at this place. So I'm gonna even the playing field. We've got bar and bowling mixer, which by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. But in this scenario, we've got bar and bowling mixer versus car painting or whatever the committee is. You show up to one, 
you walk around the room. Oh, what are you working on right now? Oh, me too. Okay. Well, this is what I'm working on. And yeah, I'm trying to work on this next. And oh yeah, I like this show too. And hey, uh, can I get your card? And maybe, you know, or maybe we don't do cards anymore because I'm a hundred years old and people have ways of like using Instagram and all these other scanning codes. And every time I go to these events, they're like, oh, put out your phone. I'm like, I'm a hundred. I don't know what you're doing right now, <laughs> um, which is why I do most of my networking strategically from home. But the point You're not a hundred sack. I'm, I'm getting there. Um, but the, the point being that one of them, it's a game of quantity. The other is a game of quality. When you go to these other uh, events, yeah, you you might meet a similar number of people or even less people are there. So in some people's minds, well, there's going to be less opportunities for me to meet people because there's only going to be 10 or 15 at this event versus 150 at this bowling mixer. But it's the quality of the relationships that you build over time because you're collaborating towards a common goal. It's not I'm here. I want to tell my story. Maybe you know of a gig. Maybe you can help me out. It's we are here to help others together with a common strategic goal. That's where the bonds build. And like you said, you want to be able to help people that you know, that you trust, that you like, that you know are also putting good into the world. Mixer is just kind of, yeah, I'll see who I can meet and make some friends. And, and honestly, again, a lot of that is, is forgettable interactions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. And the, one of the, the uh, strategies that I give my students is I actually break down the three levels of your network. One of those levels is your peer group. If you want to build a peer group of people that are doing similar work to you and just make friends and have people to reach out to, if you have a question about this or that or the other thing, mixers are a great way to do that. As far as strategically building the right relationships to move your career forwards, I don't think the mixers really offer that opportunity. But I think the kind of mixers that you're talking about that are more advocacy-based build stronger relationships where it is still a little bit hit or miss about who the people are that are going to be there. Because, for example, um, and this is going to be very much hyperbole, but let's assume that I want to work in uh, scripted 30-minute comedy and every single person at the car washing event only does prestige 60-minute drama. Well, maybe it doesn't strategically help me with my next steps, but I still get to build stronger relationships with people that might know others that work in 30-minute scripted comedy. So again, it, it's it, the question is, do you want to play a game of quantity or do you want to be, play a game of quality? You're talking about playing a game of quality. You also do it in quantity, which I think is really smart. Well, smart, but also time consuming. But yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's not just quality, but also if you're going to do a project like that, you have to meet a couple of times and plan it and stuff. So that's mm -hmm. more interactions with the same people. And then they're more likely to remember you and start uh, thinking of you more than just one interaction at a bar. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I want to start uh, winding it down because I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, and as two editors, I want to make sure we're pretty good with keeping this two time. Um, but I'm curious because we've covered a lot of different ground, a lot of different concepts. We've told a fair amount of your story. Is there a story or an idea that's really important to you to share that we haven't covered yet? I think the the how I met Dan is kind of interesting and yeah, and let's do relevant. that. I want to let's I want to hear more about how that happened because I know because a lot of people could get use out of it. So when I was restarting my new circle of contacts in Unscripted, um, I went to these mixers and I applied to the ACE internship program. Uh, I didn't get in, but I, I created a bunch of friends through that. And I was, so like I said earlier, I was, I went to, when I was still in Israel, I learned After Effects and the school that taught me After Effects, I was still on their mailing list, even though I, I lived here. So one day I got an email saying, hey, this big shot Hollywood editor is going to be speaking at our school. 
uh, everybody should come listen to him. And I wrote to the head of the school saying, hey, do you mind introducing me? And his name was Dan Labentel. Do you mind introducing me with to him so that if when he comes back to L.A., he'll be willing to talk to me? And so she was like, oh, just reach out to him on Facebook. And I was like, what? You can reach out to people on Facebook and it's legitimate. It's OK. Like I, that, like my mind was blown that you can cold reach out to people like that. And that's considered OK. So I reached out to him. First of all, he was giving a talk in Israel. His name is Dan Leventhal. So I, you know, wrote to him this long message in Hebrew and introduced myself and said, oh, we have this mutual contacts. And and I waited a month and I didn't hear back. And usually a lot of people and me included would say, OK, he's not interested and forget about it. For some reason, I decided to send it again after a month. Just see what happens. So I sent it again, and then I get a one-line response. Sorry, I don't speak Hebrew. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Absolutely love that. We just automatically assume I bothered them. I've offended them. They're not interested in helping me. And it all came down to, duh, he couldn't read your message. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, like I said, he had a very Israeli-sounding name. He was in Israel giving a talk at my school. It didn't even occur to me that he would know Hebrew. Um, So I translated the whole message, sent it again. We started chatting. He invited me uh, to his editing office and we talked and and he took interest in what I was up to. He's like, send me stuff you're editing. And I didn't want to send him any reality stuff. But once I started editing shorts for film students and I had a a rough cut I was pretty proud of, I sent him that and he was like, oh, this is pretty good. By the way, I'm starting an indie this Friday and my normal assist uh, isn't available or uh, she couldn't do the the low rate or something. Do you want to be my assist? And I was like, hell yeah, I'm available. And I was not available, but I became available. And so that's how we worked together for like a year and a half, just the two of us on an indie film. And this guy had edited at that, you know, he's edited a ton of big movies by, by then. Some of them, Marvel movies, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, and other and Favreau's Cowboys and Aliens and Elf and a million other movies. And so this was like excellent training for me on scripted television. He hired me because I knew Avid from reality TV. So he knew I wouldn't delete everything or break anything. And so it was a great relationship. And then he kept we kept staying in touch and he'd become a mentor ever since, just from, you know, a message in Hebrew that I had to send twice. Yeah, I I love that as a story to cap it off. And one thing that I just want to emphasize that is even more important here, and I tell this to my students all the time, we get it into our heads that if there's some opportunity available, we have to be the most qualified candidate. We have to meet all the criteria. We have to have the best credits. We have the most experience. We know all the hard skills. And you had the necessary skills for Dan to consider you. But ultimately, it's that you were the most recent person in front of him at exactly the right time, which so many people would say, once again, Sharon, you sure got lucky, must be nice. But luck is the meeting of preparation and opportunity. He had the opportunity and you were prepared for it. But think about all the people that Dan has in his network, Elf, the Iron Man's, Thor, et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on. Do you really believe you were the most qualified candidate at that exact moment to be his assistant editor on that job on that day? He had plenty of people in his network that probably had more experience than you. But number one, they probably wouldn't have worked for that rate. And number of two, something about this just felt right because of your interaction, because of your level of experience. And for him, lack of experience was actually a value 
for the, uh, and I say lack of experience is based on lack of credits for you at the time. That was actually a value because he knew he couldn't get the, the A-listers to do it. So the preparation met opportunity and boy, did you get lucky. I created the luck. You that's, created the luck. That's, that's exactly it. what I talk about is that you can't wait for the luck or hope for it. You have to create it. Now, that doesn't mean that luck doesn't exist. People always say, oh, Zach, you say luck doesn't exist. I hate it when they say that. Luck absolutely exists. We just describe far too much of our world and the way that things come together to luck when I think that we have a lot more ability to write the next chapters in our story, knowing that luck will be a component, but it doesn't have to be the driving force. Yeah. So the, there's a little bit of luck here, but I believe that you made the vast majority of this happen and you just happened to be in the right place at the right time. It's true. I think it's the best spot to be in is, or the sweet spot is creating your luck. So going out there and creating the opportunity for the luck to kind of manifest, but also putting good out there and meeting people while you're doing good. It's a great combo. Could not agree more. That's the whole reason that you and I talk today. And in the spirit of meeting people, it would be a horrible misstep if I didn't ask would you like to connect with those that hear this today and would like to connect with you? And if so, how do they do that? I would say uh, Facebook Messenger, but I want to see if people are actually helping people. I don't really like I'm not really into the, hey, I just listened to your podcast. Here's my resume kind of thing. So reach out to me if you really connect with what I'm saying and you have examples to, to, to give me of how that relates to your life. I'm glad you put it that way because that's exactly the way that I teach it in my program. If you're not going to lead with value to others first, do not bother reaching out and trying to build a relationship. I have many pet peeves. One of my biggest is, hi, my name is, these are the things that I've done. My resume is attached for your reference. If you hear of anything, could you please let me know or pass me along? That is the absolute worst way to start a conversation and build a relationship. So I'm glad that you just kind of put it out there like, if that's your approach, don't even waste my time. You said it in a much nicer way, but I'm going to say it that way. Don't waste Sharon's time. If you want to provide value with her and you want to provide value to others together, send her a Facebook message. Yeah, so. it's all about being unique and showing who you really are and not the templates and all that. Um, but isn't it cool, though, that you're now at the point where people are reaching out to you as opposed to you having to reach out to everybody else? It's pretty cool that you created that world. It's insane. But yeah, yeah. it's not insane. It's but it's cool. <laughs> But um, I, I'm very honored, yeah. As you should be. Well, I'm honored to have had this time to have you on the podcast today and looking forward to all the good we can do with this conversation and want to thank you for taking the time to be here today and also being the one to reach out to me to pitch the idea so that I could see the value that it brings to both me and the show, but also to those that are listening. Cannot thank you enough. Well, thank you, Zach, also for what you're doing with the community and with helping people. It's also inspiring to me too. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. 
When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.